The songs are gone. God has done me an injustice. I don't want to serve him anymore. I don't want to write any more gospel tunes for him. The songs are gone. Those are the words of Thomas Dorsey. Not Tommy Dorsey of big band fame, but Thomas Andrew Dorsey, the father of gospel music. Those words spilled out of him as he was holding his dead wife's hand and his newborn son was perishing in the crib at the end of the bed. The songs are gone, he said. The year was 1931. Dorsey was but 32 years old and he was already a household name throughout America. Born in 1899 in Villa Rica, Georgia, to a fiery Baptist African-American preacher, he started falling in love with music in utero. And before he was 10, he could already play gospel on the piano, and by the time he was about 12, he was playing the blues and jazz. <laughs> he was discovered by Paramount Records as a young man, and by age 25, he was taken to Chicago with a big-time contract with them. He took the stage name as Georgia Tom, and every Friday and every Saturday night, he filled up Al Capone's speakeasies to waiting room only. <laughs> and in 1928, he had his breakout hit. It was a ragtime piece called It's Tight Like That. It sold seven million copies. It went gold. Boy, he was, he was at the apogee of his success. But you know, it was then that the Lord started knocking on his door. And he gave all that up right then. He, made a, he did it about face and went back to what he loved. The Lord touched his life. He had a rebirth. He had a reconversion, as many people in this room have experienced. And he began to only write and sing and play gospel again. In 1930, he was asked to be the keynote musician and song leader for the National Baptist Convention. That's a far cry from Al Capone's gin joints, wouldn't you say? <laughs> and in 1931, he was down in St. Louis, Missouri, doing a gospel concert that was, you know, that was standing room only. Things were going big time. It was not only a song fest, it was a revival when a young man came out onto the stage and gave him a telegram, and there was only one sentence on the telegram, your wife is dead. Dorsey ran off the stage, got on the phone, and when he connected with his home, all he could hear was screaming, Nettie is dead, Nettie is dead, Nettie is dead. A buddy of his drove in through the night to get back home. Now, this is before interstate highways, so you can imagine what that was like, treacherous and hazardous at night. But there's no place for a black man to stop. In those days, not a single hotel on the highway would let a black man stay there anyway. And so they drove through the night, and when he got to his home, his beloved wife, Nettie, was still in the bed that they shared. He took her cold hand and he held it 
and his son would be dead 24 hours later. It's then that the mantra began to erupt from him. The songs are gone, he said. God has done me an injustice. I don't want to serve him anymore. I don't want to write any more gospel tunes for him. The songs are gone. Dorsey's rebirth, his newfound faith was suddenly perforated with doubt, riddled with doubt, such that he was sinking into despair. He had two, two nervous breakdowns in a row. And eventually took a pistol and put it to his head. But for some reason, grace, I have to believe, he didn't pull the trigger. He began to get back out again, and uh, one day he found himself in a friend's home in his friend's music room. The friend had to go off on an errand or something, and there was Dorsey left in there. And almost instinctively, he rested his left arm on the piano. And the next thing you know, his fingers began to walk down the keys. And a tune began to come forth. And the words came out of him and they splattered, they splattered on the black and white keys. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am so honest they were so powerful that the greatest gospel singer of all times Mahalia Jackson had to record it there's never been one like her and then years later B.B. King sang it then my mother's favorite Tennessee Ernie Ford and then Roy Rogers sang it probably on top of Trigger who knows And then the Queen of Soul sang it, Aretha Franklin. Then the King sang it. Then the King sang it, Elvis Presley. But the important thing is that millions upon millions of Christians have sung this as their marching tune. Because we know the Christian life is not a straight line. That it is absolutely punctured with doubt. It's part of of it's part of the travel, isn't it? It's part of the path we take. And so we call on the precious name of our Lord, believing he'll go with us even when it's turned dark, real dark. Maybe that's how you're feeling right now. It's how I felt this week. You know, all for the last three months, I have been so eager to be with you. I mean, like Josh and the music team and the other clergy, I just wanted to see your face. I just wanted to see your face, even if it has a mask up. <laughs> um, I just thought that 
when the quarantine began to lessen, we would be almost giddy with excitement. But instead, this nation has erupted in, in pain. The death of George Floyd has been like pulling a scab off of the coronavirus. And I realize now it's like pulling a scab off the last five decades in this country. And we're really hurting. And Christians, Christians are seeking answers. And we're disappointed. And we're hurting. And um, we have some doubts. But you know, our forebears, our forebears in the faith had doubts too. We can take some, we can take some real, some real courage from that. I mean, take the 11 disciples. Um, they are called up to the mountain in Galilee that, uh, where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they fell down and worshipped him. But, 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 some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, that second clause brings out the worst in us, I'm afraid. We begin to try to figure out, okay, who were the weak links? Oh yeah, it had to be Bartholomew. Nothing's written about that guy. He just couldn't carry the mail. Or how about James? Oh, he was incredibly vain. You know, had, it had to be one of him. Oh, Thomas, he could only swim in the shallow end anyway. <laughs> That's ridiculous that any of us would point out anyone else's weak faith. <laughs> Thank goodness the Greek in this passage is ambiguous. And so the passage could just as easily be rendered this way. When the disciples were called to the mountain to which Jesus directed them, they fell down and worshipped him. And they doubted. They doubted. Now that's honest. That's, that's Thomas Dorsey honesty right there, isn't it? And they doubted. Of course they doubted. Those 11 were working class guys, right? They're just working class people. The last time, the last time they even heard about Jesus, he was being tacked up on a cross with eight-inch nails. Now, most of them never saw that, by the way. Not according to Matthew. Most of them never even saw him tacked up on the cross. No, no, you have to go to Matthew 26 to see the last time they saw Jesus. And the last time they saw Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they all turned and ran when he was arrested. You see, the disciples don't doubt they're seeing Jesus. For goodness sakes, they fall down and worship him. What they doubt is themselves. They doubt themselves. How in the world will they ever walk down that mountain? They have been such an incredible disappointment to themselves and to their Lord. Ever felt that way? Oh, Lord. Count me in. How am I ever going to walk down that mountain? And intensifying it is the fact of what Jesus tells them. He says, I want, you to, I want you to go. You hear that? That's the verb, baby. Go. Go down this mountain. And I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach people to obey everything I've commanded you. Oh, that's a small order. Just to, 
set things right. They're supposed to go down into Israel to do that. Remember, it was, it was, it was those in power, the governmental and, and religious officials in Israel, who conspired to execute Jesus. So they're going to go down there and do that. And then they're supposed to go out into the world. That's the, the known world for them was around the Mediterranean. It was a kingdom that was ruled by people that worshipped the emperor as a god. It's going to be tough sledding, isn't it? And just think about what they're being asked to do. Think about it. You go down and make disciples of all nations. You make disciples of all nations. You make disciples to me of all nations. The one who demonstrates the utter sacrificial love of God. You make disciples who are going to love sacrificially. You make those kind of disciples. And you teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. What did I command you? The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. With everything you've got. And then love your neighbor the way that I have loved you. Oh, is that all? No, it's not all. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now I know that a lot of us have grown up thinking that baptism is just kind of the preliminaries before the champagne brunch. That wasn't Jesus' conception or anybody else's. Baptism, as St. Paul says, is this. Therefore, you have been buried with Christ into his death at baptism so that you can be raised with him and walk in newness of life you have been buried with Christ in baptism so you may be raised with him and walk in newness of life our life in Christ is one that begins with death we have to die to the old person that old person's got to go. If that old person doesn't go, we can't, we can't walk down that mountain, can we? But the old person does die. He has to die over and over again. I had to get over myself this morning and do something pretty hard. But by golly, by the power of God in me, I was able to die to that guy and be raised to newness of life and walk in newness of life. That's how you walk down the mountain. But which is also, what's also powerful and what gets them finally walking is when Jesus says the last thing he ever says to them, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You won't be able to go anywhere without Jesus. There's nowhere you can go without Christ. Nowhere. He's going with us. That's a comfort and that's a challenge. It's a comfort to think that, hey, this is not a solo deal. When I confront the powers of this age, when I confront the darkness and the ugliness, the utter, the utter godlessness of this age, then um, I know Christ is with me. Christ is with me for me to be like him, not like Pat. Pat's a disaster. Christ is wonderful. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. What about you? And so I look at where we are today. How do we walk down the mountain and do what's right? You know, how do we do it? 
I mean, I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot, we cannot live according to Fox News, News' agenda or MSNBC's agenda. We can't live according and act according to the Democrats' agenda or the Republicans' agenda. We only have one agenda. We have Christ's agenda. It's the only one. And it is far more strenuous and it is far more wonderful than any of those jokers' agenda. Can you say amen to that? And we have to be emissaries of sacrificial love. We have to teach that God wants us to love one another as he loves us. We have to say we're not stuck in our sins any longer. You can be reborn. Now, I want to take this out. I want to take this whole thing out of the political context. And I'm going to challenge us with two images, okay? I'm going to challenge us with two images. Two important images. I want us to ask the hard question, what would our grandparents and great-grandparents think about us? Now, yesterday was the 76th anniversary of D-Day, the beginning of the freedom that gave us back Europe and gave us back, gave us back Asia. 4,000 young men, black and white, Asian and, and Latino died on that beach. 4,000 in hours. And a year later, due to their sacrifice and so many others, do you know that 10,000 people died? 10,000 of our troopers died just training for Operation Overlord? 10,000 died and 4,000 died on the beach. A year later, because of those sacrifices, some of the men came home. All, you know, our grandparents and our great-grandparents came home. They came home to the GI Bill. They came home to be able to be educated in a trade or go to university, to get a job, buy a house, live in a neighborhood, have a school in that neighborhood that was as good as anybody else's school. They're able to take the kids to the dentist. They're able to have a future. Our grandparents, I believe, would be asking us right now, our grandparents and great-grandparents are asking the question, what have we Americans done to the working class? What have we done to the working class that you can't even take your kids to the dentist? We've got some hard questions to ask ourselves. That's not a political question. That's a gospel question. The next, next thing I ask us is this. What are our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren going to think about us? 155 years ago, the Civil War ended at the courthouse at Appomattox. And yet we continue to enter into racial hatred. What is up with that? That's inexcusable. It will not stand. It will not stand. Not in God's kingdom. Folks, it's no good to, to bequeath your grandkids or your great-grandkids a ranch or a house or give them a trunkload of money if the soul of America is rotting out. We can do better. We can do better. Can you say amen to that? We can do better. And I believe that with all my heart. We can do better. 
I don't care what side of the aisle anybody's on. I know we can do better. And I want to be able to look at my grandchildren and say, I did my best. I didn't go for comfort. I wanted to have a generosity of spirit. Now, another one of Dorsey's songs really really hits on this. It was a song that Elvis sang. June 6, 1957. The the situation was that the Soviet Union was rolling into Hungary and 250,000 Hungarians had no place to live. They were like people leaving El Salvador or something, Guatemala. They had no place to go. They're terrorized. And so they're on the run and Elvis saw it. Now I know Elvis got sick later on, but you know one of the last concerts he ever did was right here in this city? I was here at the university when he was doing that. Elvis was at his best. And so he asked to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. Only 54 million people tuned in. He wouldn't take a penny. He wouldn't take one penny for what he sang that night. He picked a Dorsey song. In the end, the money he received from all the crowds calling in was $58.9 million. He gave to those migrants. That's what happens. That's what will happen to you and me when Christ gets a hold of us. And we will be for the healing of this nation. And we'll be bright torches on the Liberty Road. And now, let's hear. Let's hear what Elvis sang that night. i 